You are listening to the Inspiring Stewards Podcast, where we talk to ordinary stewards through whom God is doing extraordinary things. Our guest today, Rob Martin, shares some incredible insight into the opportunity we have for the future of mission in the world if we focus on unleashing local stewardship. This, if done faithfully over time, will lead to the sustained interdependence that will affect gospel transformation globally. My name is Nathan Jones, and I'll be serving as your host on this episode of the Inspiring Stewards Podcast. Rob, thank you so much for the time this morning, and I am just thrilled to jump into uh, to this interview. And so let's just kick it off. Give us a little bit of background, kind of where you're from, where you grew up. Uh, who is Rob Martin? Hmm. Well, that's a, it's actually an interesting question to me uh, from the standpoint that I am the grandson of Armenian orphans that hmm. were slaughtered. Wow. Uh, my great-grandparents were killed in 1896 in a small dust-up in Urfa, Armenia, and it was wow. very similar to the Syrian situation that you see now. The Christians were caught between competitive forces mm. and were trying to find their own space, and they were put on a long march, and it was the beginning of the genocide of the Armenians that actually went on for 20 more years. Wow. And millions were killed. And my grandparents, my great grandparents on my mother's side, my mother was five, my grandmother was five years old when she saw her parents slaughtered in front of her, raped, wow. slaughtered, and killed. And she was rescued by Presbyterians in Aleppo, Syria, and was renamed Son of the Martyrs, Martyrosian. Mm. And then later in life, for a number of reasons, I was given the name Martin as a tribute to my great-grandparents' martyrdom. Wow. And so there's a survival instinct that I inherited through my maternal life that has uh, gotten me through a lot. And then by uh, I was one-third through my life or more, and I found Christ at the age of wow. 33 after a, a difficult time of not looking for him and mm. looking looking for happiness everywhere, but yeah. And, yeah. Um, and soon after I became a Christian in 1976, uh, I was called into this work. Got, uh, and so I got started within a few weeks. What drew you to Christ? I was desperate. Mm. Uh, my life had fallen apart. I was, mm. I'll just say I was yeah. desperate. And the one thing I hadn't tried was church. My mm. uh, younger stepbrothers had all come to faith in the Jesus people movement. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, and I was desperate. There was an I Found It campaign going on in the mid-70s, a okay. big campus crusade program that wow. people were making fun of. Every, I was on a road trip interviewing for a newspaper job, and everything was stolen, and I'm sitting in the motel room, dead mm. broke everything gone. And I see this TV show commercial and it's a guy talking about Christ and saying, I found it. And he jumps up and kicks his heel. <laughs> and Campus Crusade was, uh, some people made fun of them for the program. The, yeah. the, uh, the Jewish community had a bumper sticker made that said, we never lost it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. I mean, it was, yeah. in any case, 
it, it put into the back of my mind, hey, that's the one thing you haven't tried. Wow. And that day I had actually considered what it would be like to not be alive. And that yeah. had scared me into wow. wanting to seek life and yeah. I found it in Christ. So the uh, the compass bearing changes, you come to know the Lord and, and what impact did that begin to have on your life? Oh, it was a wholesale transformation mm -hmm. almost immediately because I wow. needed it. It was like a blood transfusion or wow. really more of a soul transfusion. That's I went from image. lost literally to found and, mm -hmm. and just started finding a new life, a new viewpoint, and, mm -hmm. and, but also a sense of love, security, and hope that, I'd, mm -hmm. that I hadn't had before. And it was a security based on the love of God. Wow. And that was the preaching I was drawn to and hearing. Yeah. And, um, and all of the things that were holding me back we're suddenly being chipped away yeah. and I just feel the new man being built wow. in. And so it was very real to me. Plus I got involved early with a little street mission that was serving the homeless and began to see God work miraculously. Wow. Because when you're down with the least, the last and the lost and doing anything for them, anything for them, God is alongside of you and pushing that energy that you're giving and yeah. just multiplying it in ways that yeah. are unfathomable unless you believe in him yeah. and understand that what's happening isn't coincidence yeah. or luck. Yeah. The follow-up campaign could be, he found me. He found me. From, <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's beautiful. Yeah. Well, I, I want to kind of hear what life has been like since then, kind of how the Lord has you involved in his kingdom. But there was a pivotal conversation that you had in those early days at the rescue mission that really set a course then for your journey of stewardship. Give us a kind of retell yeah. that. <laughs> now, this, <clears throat> this is actually the most surprising part of the story. And if I were to tell you that for this part of the story, my life verse would be, he uses the foolish things of this world to confound the wise. You'd understand. I mean, the mission was struggling. We were being pushed out of our location by the city. There was uh, uh, lawsuits. Uh, it was a tumultuous time uh, because the homeless situation in the United States had just exploded in the 1970s uh, at the end of the Vietnam War. Okay. A lot of those veterans, in fact, one in 10 ended up in the streets for at least a month. Wow. It was uh, back in those days. In addition, they closed down the mental institutions uh, for most mental illness because of the advent of psychotropic uh, drugs and therapy was you know, getting people better. And so they yeah. closed down the hospitals the, the long-term care facilities that they had the mentally ill in, quite a few of them ended up in the streets. And that was the beginning here in the United States of the bag lady phenomenon. Hmm. All of that happened at the same time and the cities wanted the rescue missions out. And so we were struggling in that environment, putting a nickel together here, a dime together there. Mm -hmm. It was literally very small. And my board chair, who was an accountant and I'm the exact opposite of accountants. Uh, called me into his office early one morning in the middle of the week and said, you got to come over. And he, mm -hmm. and 
through, he was a very thoughtful Christian, mm. uh, very full of life and Lord and the Lord. Mm. And he said, last night, God kept me up, woke me up and kept me up all night saying that you and I were going to handle millions of dollars for him in his name. Wow. And, and then he drags me down to the floor of his office and says, let's pray. And I'm laughing. I'm literally <laughs> laughing because we had 5,000 in the bank, maybe. <laughs> yeah. Monthly revenues of 10, 15,000. I mean, it was, and we were feeding hundreds and housing. And well, I was, was just vicious. cracking up. And I had no idea how to fundraise, no idea how to lead, no mm -hmm. idea how to organize. I was just sort of showing up and trying to make things happen. A couple of years later, after I built the mission and uh, it was time for someone to come in to run the place instead of turn it around and build mm -hmm. you know, be one of those kind of activists. Yeah. Uh, managers rather than an activist builder, which is what I turned out to be at that time. And um, and I went to work for one of the wealthiest people in the world. Hmm. Out of the blue, he had been a supporter of the rescue mission, and he asked me to come and help him give away his money. Wow. And that's where it started. 1983 at Fieldstead and Company. He had a deep interest in India. We immediately did a trip to India. We worked with um, a number of missions. I worked there for six years. You know, I won't disclose how much money we distributed, but it was into the multiple millions. Your accountant friend was right. It was exactly right. And wow. he went on to become the controller of YWAM. Wow. One of the largest missions in the world. Yep. And he literally was managing multiple millions of dollars for the, the, the YWAM Mercy Ships Ministries yeah. and other things like that. That's fascinating. And I was managed, I had one of the first jobs in Christian philanthropy. There wasn't a, really a field in this before. Obviously, wealthy people have always given their money to the church and have always given their money to mission. It's just there wasn't this sense of organized deep philanthropy where mm. people were actively looking for uh, philanthropies were actively looking at missions there yeah. were a lot of major donors of course but yeah. organized philanthropy that is two decision philanthropy where you're dealing one with a program officer that mm -hmm. invites you to bring a proposal to their board but the board makes the decision mm. i have never made a decision on this giving until I actually served on the board of a rescue uh, foundation that okay. also gave away yeah. multiple millions of dollars to the guy that baked the buns for yeah. McDonald's hamburgers. Yeah. Wow. Overseas. I mean, <laughs> you know, and uh, this was finance. The first guy I worked for was finance. This last foundation I'm with now, I retire in four months. Okay. I've been with them 31 years. The funds came from building out homes. Okay. So a very large national home builder. Yeah. So wow. I've seen millions of dollars go into mission. It's not been my money. It's always been somebody else's money. And I've just yeah. been a employed steward. Mm. But they were the stewards. And I was yeah. serving their stewardship by finding opportunities for them to put 
money to yeah. work. It's a very unusual job, but from that day of being told I was going to be handling millions of dollars yeah. Yeah. Uh, for God to this time, it's happened. Yeah. We're talking about stewardship in this podcast and inspiring yeah. stewards is the name. And you have seen and experienced stewardship from a very unique seat. For those that are listening that maybe have a question around the definition of stewardship, what would you offer by way of some thoughts or even a phrase definition, if you've got one on, on what is stewardship? We all have responsibility for the things in our life, mm -hmm. but not ownership. Mm -hmm. The ownership is uh, from God. And if you don't recognize that, then you're, the burden for your life is on you. Yeah. <laughs> to, 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 uh, to look at everything. I've seen God work in the most desperate situations on earth. I've traveled to over 70 countries. Wow. That money that was that I was just working with these uh, givers with was dedicated to the poorest people at the, in the world. And I had access to them because we had the funds for me to go on the road and go and yeah. see how stewardship worked. And what I realized is the strongest stewards in the world are some of the poorest people I've ever been around. Okay. I would wow. direct your listeners to a film they can find on YouTube called The Handful of Rice. The, so, the Handful seven, of Rice. Okay. Seven-minute film, Handful of Rice. I taught the woman that is featured in that video. It's one of the most powerful videos on stewardship you can see because wow. it talks about how the people of Mizoram in the northeast of India evangelized their entire population to 95% are churchgoers over the last 100 years, going from being, in some cases, uh, headhunters to this level. They're still very poor, but they send their own missionaries out to the tune of millions of dollars wow. through the raising of a handful of rice. That is, the homemaker takes a handful of rice, makes the, mm -hmm. uh, the family's pot, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, rice for dinner and then puts a similar amount into a bag takes it to church on the weekend and it's sold back to the parishioners and now to the community and wow. that's how they raise their money for missions wow and all of it just on the simplest generosity. but that handful of rice yeah. is it would be like one of us in the united states taking our entire food budget and a, and a portion of our rent budget and saying, we're going to double this. And whatever we spend on food and rent, we're going to give to mission. Wow. That's, That's what it's like. That's yeah. stewardship. So stewardship and, is not only for the rich. Cool. They need it more. <laughs> a lot of rich people are rich by being hoarders. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, we were talking a few minutes I'm, ago. I've had the privilege of working for the ones that yeah. recognize it's God's money and that they mm. are a steward. So the, the thing about stewardship is ownership. You're not yeah. the owner. You yeah. are the manager. Yeah. And the thing that really works for me in this work that is the parable of the stewards 
uh, of the three. One's given five and he doubles mm -hmm. it and another 10 and he doubles it. And one's given one and he buries it because he's afraid. Yeah. The other two uh, may have been wise investors, which is mm -hmm. a skill, mm -hmm. but they were also entrepreneurial. And stewardship is entrepreneurial in that sense, is that mm -hmm. when you have something, what do you do with it? How do you make it grow? That was the purpose of that, is whatever you're given to that measure, grow it. Yeah. That's like being given a garden plot, some seeds, a pail of water, and told, grow something so that you can eat it. It's no different. It, we are stewards of this. And when we realize that, we start becoming genuine disciples. Hmm. So for me, discipleship started the day I gave my first gift. And I was very reluctant. I was broke. I'd been robbed of everything. I'm sleeping on my mother's couch. It couldn't be where a 33-year-old man sleeping on his mother's couch. Wow. And I, I picked up a small job and I got a paycheck, which for me at that time, and it's still a lot of money, it was $600. Okay. I hadn't heard any teaching on stewardship, generosity, on giving, on tithing, on responsibility to do mm -hmm. that. I just had this strong urge that I was supposed to give some of this money away. Hmm. And that ushered in a slithering, selfish mood. I did not want to give a penny of it away. I hadn't spent any of my time, money in the past. I don't think I donated anything since I was a kid and put a dime in the old March of Dimes polio campaign uh -huh. thing, which is way before your time. Wow. And, and I'm sitting there thinking, wait a second, that set up a, a big crisis in my heart, in my soul. Yeah. And I took a long walk on the streets that day, trying to figure out what was the challenge. And I came down to this simple idea. I was struggling with my belief in God. Was he real or was he not real? If he wasn't real, if it was just an illusion, if this was just a Sunday morning club that I was going to with a bunch of fun people that like to sing and do strange things, then... Why would I give that money? Maybe to pay the bills, you know, yeah. just charge me a little mission charge, five bucks. What's the cost to turn the lights on? Yeah. That's how my thinking was going. Yeah. And I realized, no, what I'm really struggling with is my belief in God. Is he real? And if he is, then what does that mean to who I am? And so I realized on that walk that he was the deepest reality of my life. And as such, anything I had was his, given from him to yeah. me, to steward. And I don't remember where I gave that day, but I remember that I did. What I really remember is when I gave the gift, I felt that I had exchanged something precious which was very precious to me at the time. I needed the money to live on and get off the couch. Yeah. yeah. And, but I'd given the money that was precious to me for something much more precious. Mm. Stewardship. The sense of well done, my good and faithful servant. Not that I was earning anything by giving. I was just responding to what I was given by making it possible for others to hear the message. 
Yeah. That I had heard. And yeah. so I joyfully gave that money. And here's the key thing. It was that day that I felt I actually became a disciple of Christ. Not just mm -hmm. a watcher, not just a participant, yeah. but an actual disciple sold out. And I've never looked back since then. Stewardship is exciting. Generosity is exciting. And it should be a joyful experience for you. Yeah. It is when you recognize you're just a steward, not an owner. The harder you grip, you're going to lose it. It's like gripping yeah. a, hard, a bar of soap in a shower too yeah. hard. It's going to yeah. go just gonna slip else. out. <laughs> yeah. So, so considering that reality, that stewardship is, is uh, very closely related to our discipleship, Considering how God is at work in the world around us and in the days to come, what are some, some words of observation uh, that you would offer by way of, of how you're seeing God at work? Well, to our listeners here at home in the United States, uh, home for me, mm -hmm. um, it can seem kind of hopeless. The church is rent with political and civic and racial and emotional and cultural differences to to the point where we look like medieval Europe mm. fighting between Catholics and Protestants. I mean, it's just, it's a terrible witness. However, there are still a lot of very generous people in the West. The critical thing for Western givers, so I'm speaking to Western givers with these thoughts, is to encourage local giving with your giving. Hmm. The point there is we're aiming for something here at with Global Trust Partners and others called um, sustained interdependence. Hmm. And what that means is changing the paradigm from the money comes from the West and goes to the South and then is utilized in the South for evangelization. Instead, the money goes from the West now or from wherever. It's mission from everywhere to everywhere. So what you need to be able to do, if you're going to be a successful mission, that is cover your expenses and actually make a difference with your loving actions, is that if you can develop local stewardship in your churches by fundraising from them, by fundraising from the local folks, mm -hmm. they will give you an accountability that will help you establish the ability to sustain your work, whether you have large grants or not. Hmm. Now, let's say that you have big projects. This happened in the north of India. Uh, when the Southern missionaries started going up to the north at Friends Missionary Prayer Band and all, they were on personal support raising. And they were able to sustain that for at least two or three decades. This okay. massive push of evangelization that has led to millions coming to Christ in the North. Mm -hmm. And that is not an exaggeration. We can talk literally into perhaps a hundred million Christians now live in wow. India. There may be more. Those numbers are from a few years ago. Uh, they just sustained the work for the longest time, just on personal support. And then they started getting into social action, building mm -hmm. hospitals building schools, just exactly what Christians have done for 2,000 years. They built hospitals, they built schools, 
Uh, they started taking care of the dead and dying on the streets. They started mm. feeding the homeless. And suddenly you need kitchens and buildings and, and x-ray machines. And mm. that takes big pots of money. Yeah. So sustained interdependence means we all need somebody else to help us accomplish our work when we're working in the kingdom. Hmm. And so we create these partnerships, but we create them in a way that we're in equal with our partner, no matter what the relative wealth of both are in the setting. We actually call that a communion of giving and receiving occurs where we're equals at the cross. Hmm. And when that happens, we can come to this place of sustained interdependence. Yeah. It is where the local mission is accountable to its local church and its local believers, everyone that knows them. That gives confidence to all other donors, givers, mm -hmm. including international if they need them. So let's say you're a, mission, a humble missionary, you're building a school and you need 20,000 for a classroom. Yeah. Well, if you can raise a thousand or 2000 in your community, that's a big deal. That's the equal to somebody's entire yearly wages yeah, or more. Then you can meet as equals with someone that can give you the 20,000 mm -hmm. or aggregate that kind of money for you in order to build the classroom, in order to expand the kingdom. That's how the kingdom is expanded over all the years. Yeah. So what we're looking at is awakening the stewardship in the congregations that are used to the West doing the missionary work mm. all over the world, all throughout Latin America, Nigeria, Kenya, all over Asia. You have autochronous missions funding themselves to expand the kingdom. What we're talking about is taking a huge movement yeah. and exploding it bigger with just more stewardship not doing for people what they can do in their own settings yeah. and recognizing that the smallest gift from the most sacrificial gift giver is as important to your mission or more important yeah. than any large gift. Because God looks at the heart of the giver, not the money on the yeah. hand of the giver. He looks at the heart. There'll be a judgment day yeah. in which those that were had an open hand just read Matthew 25 and look at the stewardship there and what he counted stewardship, taking a glass of water to a prisoner and you're taking it to him. That meant at that moment, Christ identified with the most hideous people in our society, the people we've put away because they're dangerous to be around us. Yeah. And he said, no, I'm one of them. When you give a cold cup of water, to one of these dangerous people, yeah. he's giving it to me. That's stewardship at yeah. a critical level. Yeah. Because I who love wants how to give a cup of cold water to an ungrateful person. Right. This conversation has really unpacked the, the interconnectedness between stewardship and discipleship. And we recognize that stewardship doesn't then allow discipleship to happen as a result. But as stewardship happens, discipleship is happening in the life of the steward so powerful because you're saying hey it's all yours teach me. yeah yeah Show me yeah how to live with opening this, releasing this that yeah, yeah how do i live with my hands open yeah. instead of clutching everything yeah I mean, it's a mind-blowing change yeah but boy is it fun when you get it right yeah and if you're in with a group of believers to get it right you can put up with anything 
You can yeah. fight any war, any battle, and we've seen them do it for 2,000 years, even with their own lives. Yeah. The ultimate stewardship. Rob, this has been rich. We could keep going, but um, give us a final thought as we wrap up. <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> Good luck. Good word. No. Uh, look, get in the swim. Mm. Just give it a try. Yeah. Yeah. Start looking around. And if you're a, a, a missional entrepreneur in the developing world, Look local, look mm. around your neighborhood, look at your friends, look at your people that are in church with you, look at the partners that are helping you do your mission mm. and see what God sees, not what you see. Mm. Amen. Rob, thank you for your time. This has been tremendous. You bet. It's been fun. Thank you for joining us on this episode of the Inspiring Stewards podcast production of Global Trust Partners. To learn more, visit gtp.org.